to uh, Genesis chapter 21. Our scripture reading today is going to be verses 1 through 7 of that chapter. Genesis chapter 21. The Lord visited Sarah as He had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as He had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Let's pray. Father, this passage reminds us of who you are, that you are faithful, that you are powerful, that you are all wise, that you provide for your children, that you keep your word, that you lift up our eyes. Father, we don't find ourselves in Sarah's situation or Abraham's situation in quite the same way, but we face circumstances that might discourage us, might frustrate us, might make us feel hopeless, might make us feel like there is really no way that you can untangle this mess or really no course that you could take that would deliver us from this situation. But this passage points to us who you are, points to us how you made Sarah glad against all odds, against against possibility. And so, Father, I pray that even as we look at this text and we see what you have for us from Genesis chapter 1, I pray that you would lift our eyes and lift our hearts, that we would laugh like Sarah that we would rejoice like Sarah, that we would have the kind of joy that is shown even in this passage because of who you are. And so as we take the next few minutes out of our week, I pray that you would help us not to be distracted by what has gone before, those things that would would, uh, recur in our minds, that would distract us from your word, Pray that you would help us to set them aside. The things that are, that are upcoming, that we anticipate, that we worry about, that we stress about, that, that would capture our minds, I pray that we would set those aside as well. That in this time, we would learn of you undistractedly and that you would minister to us by your Spirit. So do your work, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 
One of the uh, encouraging things to me when I uh, look across our congregation and I see hair of various color, and some of that hair is gray and some of it is white, and, and uh, I am encouraged when I uh, encounter older saints. I'll try not to make eye contact lest you think I'm talking about you. When I encounter older saints who have seen God be faithful through the years, I'm encouraged. Because I see someone who has experienced loss and experienced hardship and seen difficulty and faced opposition and pain and all of the things that life has to offer, and yet they are so often joyful, glad people rejoicing, laughing saints. And how can that be? Is it because they have lived a charmed life? No. Is it because they've ignored all the difficult things that they've faced? No. It's because they have come to know God as He really is, and thus they have joy. They have been made glad, and they laugh. In this passage, uh, today points to one of those uh, saints, actually two of those saints who have faced difficulty. If we think back through what Abraham and Sarah have been through, it's not been easy. They've been blessed enormously, and they've got wealth, and they've got uh, 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 some notoriety, and they've been protected in various ways, and they faced real hardship. They've faced situations where they thought they were going to die, or that those near them were going to die. They've, they've faced hardship. They've faced opposition. They faced uh, people turning on them. They faced the kinds of difficulties that you and I face in life. And all the while, they have done so childless. With the hope that Sarah has had for all this time that she would bear a child, she has not born a child. And she's 90. Those days are long gone. The promise still remains, but surely God must have meant something different by that promise, because clearly a 90-year-old woman and a 100-year-old husband are not going to have a child together. This passage is, is a powerful one in, uh, in a number of ways. First of all, it shows us God's faithfulness. Even as I was reading this to you, you should have noted repeated phrase and repeated words, and I encourage you in your own Bible reading, in your own Bible study, pay attention to repeated uh, uh, phrases and words and thoughts because that's usually what the, the author is driving at, wants you to pay attention to, wants to catch in your mind, and that's what we had in this situation. Even as I was reading it, the Lord visited Sarah as He had said, the Lord did to Sarah as He had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken. These things that, that God said He was going to do, in this passage, He finally does. He had said it so often. They had anticipated for so long. And finally, we're going to see the realization. But in order to understand, really, what kind of anticipation they had, what, what it was that God had said. I want you to flip back to Genesis chapter 17. And we're going to read just a couple of verses. 
one paragraph in the middle of Genesis 17 that kind of encapsulates the message God had been giving them, that they had been waiting for decades for it to be fulfilled up to this point, and it gets clarified. We hear, we hear some specifics given in chapter 17 that kind of sets the stage for what's going to happen in 21. Genesis chapter 17, God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her. She shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. So God was encapsulating and putting a finer point on the promises that he had made before. He had promised a child, and remember there was confusion about, is it really going to come from uh, Abraham's loins, and then yes, that was clarified, well, but then is it going to come between a union, or come from a union between Abraham and Sarah, or maybe another, another surrogate mom, or whatever, uh, and then that was clarified, no, it's going to be Abraham and Sarah, and then God says, it's going to be Abraham and Sarah this time next year. So the question that should be in our minds at that point is, is God going to keep His word? I mean, He's promised before. He's promised for a long time. Is God going to be faithful and keep His Word? Well, of course, you and I are sitting in church with our Bibles open, and we're thinking, well, yeah, God's going to keep His Word, right? I mean, that's the Sunday school answer. We all know that's the case. But, but Abraham and Sarah were in the trenches. And they were struggling, and we've seen how they've struggled uh, through the course of their lives to believe whether God is really going to keep His Word or not. It's easy for us, in retrospect, thousands of years later, knowing the story already. But God was telling an old couple who had been barren their entire marriage, you're going to bear a child. No, really. No, I'm serious. The two of you are going to bear a child about a year from now. And so they've struggled uh, to, to believe in, in His faithfulness, to to trust Him. And, and finally, we come to this chapter. And with that as the background, with that uh, setting the stage for what we read in verse 1, the Lord visited Sarah as He had said He would. We shouldn't be surprised. And you and I are not surprised because we know the story. But I think Sarah was probably surprised. The Lord visited Sarah as He had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as He had promised. And Sarah conceived miraculously, against all odds, and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him.
Finally, finally the day is here. After decades of listening to promises, decades of reminding each other, I'm sure they were trying to keep that hope alive. They were trying to believe God and His Word. And finally, after all of that, after, after anticipating for decades, for us it's been 10 chapters, for them it was decades, waiting, will God really answer? Will God really give them a son? And now they've got their son. They had anticipated for all that time. Anticipation is a, is a funny thing. Not everybody really enjoys anticipation. I remember when Stephanie and I were engaged, I enjoyed the anticipation. I thought, this is kind of fun, looking forward and anticipating, expecting what's going to happen, and we're going to be married, and, and this is going to be great. And, 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 and she enjoyed the anticipation less because she was more invested in, well, when it's here, that'll be the great thing. And, and she's right, when it's here, that's the great thing, Right? But I enjoyed the anticipation. I had thought about it so much and, and, uh, and thinking about life together and what it was going to be like. And, and uh, you know, and of course, the day finally comes and you're standing in front of uh, the congregation and, and there's, you know, Bob Burroughs performing the, uh, the, the service for us. And, and I remember I was so worked up. Now it was here. I, I have very few memories from that day. It's weird, Right. It's this big day, it's momentous, it's life-changing and everything else, and I, I don't remember a whole lot, but I remember that, that Stephanie and I were standing there looking at each other's eyes, and Bob's talking, I don't know what was going on, or someone else was singing, I don't know what was happening at that point, but I said to her, can you believe all this is for us? And then about a minute later, I said, can you believe all this is for us? I didn't know I had said it twice. I thought I just thought it the first time, but I was a little frazzled, right? And I was so frazzled that I knew the time was going to come in the service when Bob was going to start asking questions, and I was going to need to answer those questions, right? You're supposed to say, I will, and I do, and the right things at the right time, right? There's, there's a response required. And, and so I was so nervous, and, and, and I'm looking at her, and I'm thinking, I hope I get it all right. I hope I can answer those questions. I'm pretty sure I'm going to mess them up. And but the anticipation leading up to that moment was so glorious. But I was frazzled and was unsure of what my response was going to be in the moment. Well, imagine the anticipation of Abraham and Sarah. You know, we were engaged for a few months before we got married. So that's just that amount of time to, to get yourself worked up, where the anticipation will drive you crazy, right? They've been anticipating for decades since they were only moderately old people. And now they're very old people. And now the, the, the time is going to come. So what's their response going to be? The buildup has been going on all this time. What will their response be? What, what kind of response uh, does such a revelation of God's grace and blessing call for? What should be their response? Well, we see, first of all, that it certainly calls for obedience. It certainly calls for obedience when God demonstrates His faithfulness. And we see there... Something, by the way, if you think back of Abraham's past, he's not always been obedient. Uh, it wasn't long ago we were just reading about him telling a flat lie about his wife. Now oh, she's my sister, <laughs> right? Trying to, to, to get himself out of trouble. So he's not always been obedient. But in this situation, we see him do exactly as he ought to do. Precisely, the author is spelling it out for us. He's doing what he ought to do. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Remember we read when God said 
you're going to have a son by Sarah. She's going to bear you a son. Name him Isaac. Abraham does exactly what God had told him to do in 17 and verse 19. And in 17.10 and in 17.12, we saw that, that Abraham, who had, uh, was going to be circumcised at that point, was to circumcise every male born in his house, including those coming uh, in his own family. Circumcise every male at eight days old. Well, what do we see in verse 4? Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him, right? He, he's being obedient. He's doing what it is that God had said to do, that he responds to God's revelation of his own faithfulness, responds to God coming through and giving him a son. He responds after all of that anticipation, after all the buildup, after all the times of disappointment and times of hope and times of hopelessness and times of sin and struggle and, and all of that, he responds finally, obeying. He was obedient. And how long has he been waiting? Well, verse 5, Abraham was a hundred years old when Isaac was born to him. That's no short wait. That's no normal circumstance that this child was born into. But but even then, even after waiting all that time and all the buildup and everything else, Abraham knows what to do. And finally, we see Abraham shine. He did exactly as God had told him to do. He responded in obedience to what God had said, and certainly a revelation of God's goodness and blessing and and ultimately redemption calls for an obedient response from His people, and that's what we see here from Abraham. So it calls for obedience, but also it calls for joy. It calls for joy. Look at verses 6 and 7. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Abraham's response was to do these things, and that was Abraham's job. He should do those things. That's exactly what God had given him to do, but, but as we peek at Sarah's response, we can see her response of joy. And, and here she, she, she starts by saying that God has made laughter for me. Now, that's a weird thing to say. Probably none of you has ever said that exact thing. But laughter and laughing has been a key to this whole saga of the expectation of the birth of this child. Isaac means he laughed. So his very name carries with it the notion of laughter, and laughter has occurred in other places as well. Besides all the mention of Isaac's name, back in 1717, which which we read, we saw that when God said that he would give Abraham a son by Sarah, what did Abraham do? He fell on his face and he did what? He laughed. That's on purpose. He laughed. The author is telling us that this is key to the story. And later, uh, we, we saw already in chapter 18 that when God said, about this time next year, Sarah, your wife, will bear a son, what was Sarah's response? She laughed. She was hiding behind the curtain, remember? She was, she was on the other side in the tent and she, she couldn't help but laugh a little bit. That, uh, that, that, that God would say that. She laughed to herself and, and she said, after I'm worn out, shall I have pleasure? So she, she laughed. And then God asks, and it uses the word again, why did she laugh? And she says, I didn't laugh. Right? The repeated words, we, we think maybe this is a problem in translation or something like that, but it's, it's, it's God pointing out to us, this is key to the whole theme, laughter. Laughter. 
Now, at this point, she's sort of laughing in kind of um, lack of faith. She's, it's not laughter of, oh, finally, yeah, it's going to be great. And when Abraham was told she's going to bear a son, he fell down and laughed. Yeah, surely not. I must have misheard you. Could you, could you say that again? She's, she's not sure. And she says, I didn't laugh. And, but God corrects her and says, no, but you, you did laugh. Right? So that we get the point that laughter is a key to the whole story. And later on, by the way, Ishmael is going to get himself into trouble by laughing at Isaac. And then Isaac is going to get himself into trouble by laughing with his wife later on. But he uses that word all through there. Laughter is an important aspect. And here we have Sarah responding by saying, God has made laughter for me. She must have been thinking to when she, when she heard God say that uh, he was going to give Abraham a son by means of her and she laughed behind the tent. She must be thinking about that. She was probably thinking about the, the discussion where she, was, where she was arguing basically with God. I didn't laugh. Yeah, you laughed. I didn't laugh. Yes, you laughed. She must have been thinking about that, and she finally says, God has made laughter for me. I get to laugh. Where there had always been unmet expectation, now there is a joyful reality. That where there had been sorrow, now there was gladness. She's anticipated, she's longed, she's wanted, she's schemed and connived. And now the reality is there. Where there had been tears of pain, now there are tears of joy. That God has turned her situation for the good. Where there was once a laughter that was rooted in, in, in bitterness, now there's a laughter springing up from satisfaction and blessing. God has given me laughter. God has made laughter for me. And so she starts off by by highlighting, by pointing out the joy that God has given her. He has made laughter for me. And that's no small thing when we think about her story. God has made her to laugh. He has given her joy. But that joy is to extend beyond her. She says not only in verse 6, God has made laughter for me, but everyone who hears will laugh over me. The joy will be for others as well. Not just for me. It's not only mine. It's not just something for me to keep bottled up, but it's going to extend and other people will be joyful as well. No, no longer will she be the barren woman who has been struggling to conceive since before they left Ur of the Chaldees. When we first met her, we were told, by the way, Sarah, she's barren. That's been her identity. That's been who she is all this time, all those long years ago, we learn of her that she was already struggling with this. No longer will that be her. No longer will she be in danger of being passed off by her, her husband as, as his unmarried sister. She's got a baby. She's clearly a married woman with a child. No longer will she be known as that barren woman. She'll be known as mom. And is there anything better to a mom? Now, I know that, you know, when your child really learns how to say mom well and then starts running around, that mom becomes, you know, a little bit less exciting to hear because you hear it 800,000 times a day. But she's never heard it, not spoken to her. And she'll be mom. 
Anyone who hears her story will laugh right along with her. What an amazing victory God has given. What a wonderful thing God has done in her life. And it will be joy not only for her, but it will be joy to others as well. That God is blessed in such an amazing way to give a son to such an old woman. And so the joy is for her, the joy is for others. Look at verse 7. She's, she asks these rhetorical questions that, that, that are actually pretty probing. She said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? He, he wouldn't have believed it. And no one else would have, would have had the guts to say it. No one would have been that crazy to believe that Sarah, the old woman, is actually going to nurse a child. And she continues. She says, yet I have borne him a son in his old age. That's repeated throughout here a number of times. This child born to you, whom Sarah bore to you. I've borne him a son. This this child being born, the author is calling us back to remember all these things about the promises that have been made, but not only the promises that have been made, but also the, the pain. If you remember back in chapter 16 and verse 1, where we read, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. There was a time when that was one of the greatest truths about her is that she couldn't bear a child for her husband. But she had a female Egyptian slave named Hagar. And Sarai said to Abraham, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. There was a time in her story when she was reflecting on the fact that that she was unable to bear a child for her son, that she was reflecting on the fact that that God had prevented her. That's how she viewed it, at least in this moment. God had prevented her from bearing a child. And so in that time of desperation, she says, well, since I can't bear him a child, maybe, maybe this other woman can bear him a child. And she did. And how crushing that must have been to Sarah. How painful, how how great a failure must that have seemed to her that she couldn't, but her maid could. If history had taught Sarah anything, it was that she couldn't have a child. So all those years ago, her despair had driven her to find a surrogate. Something unthinkable to any wife anywhere. But it was thinkable to her. It seemed like the best thing to do. But now, she who was unable to bear a child, she who had gotten Hagar to bear a child for her, she has borne him a son in his old age. Finally, this has all been redeemed. Finally, this has all been brought around that she herself has borne Abraham a son. She's a mother in her own right. She won't just hear Hagar being called mom. She will get to be called mom. It wasn't possible. She's too old. And yet God has done it. Here she is nursing her own child, all because of the the, the all-wise, all-powerful, miracle-working hand of God that she, this old woman, gets to bear a child. She, this old woman, gets to nurse her very own child. So, 
what, what's the application for us? What, if these were the responses of Abraham and Sarah to God providing the promised son, if those were their responses, what ought to be our response to God's provision of the, the greater son of promise, Jesus himself? You see, we're not, we're not in a time where we personally are awaiting the, 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 the birth of this child of promise from God. We, we may be waiting to have a child. We may be struggling to have a child. I get that. This is, this is that times a hundred as they're getting on in years and they're anticipating. But, but you and I are not in that circumstance. You and I live in a time when that child has been born. Not just Isaac. Of course, Isaac was born. Isaac was born in this chapter. But really, the ultimate child who will be the ultimate blessing, the one who will be the ultimate offspring of Abraham, who will fulfill these promises for, remember, blessing to all the nations of the world? It's in Christ. Well, you and I live in that time. And so, God has given not only Isaac, not only this child, but He's given the greater one. What ought to be our response? Well, first of all, our first point of application here is to trust God to keep His own promises. If we learn anything from Abraham and Sarah, it's that God keeps His promises. He fulfills His Word. And so, God will keep His promise that He makes in Romans 10, 13, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He keeps that promise. So call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. God keeps His his promise about uh, how He deals with the sin of His own children. The Lord is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our iniquities. It's amazing nor repay us according to our sins. For as high as the heavens are above the earth. How high is that? That's all the way high. So great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. For He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Those are promises from God about how He deals with the sin of His children. So trust Him to keep His promises. Maybe you you face temptation. We remember 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. God is faithful, and He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. That's a promise from God. Believe it when you face temptation. Maybe you feel like uh, you're, you're one of God's children, but you're, you're the one that's going to be kind of uh, left aside or forgotten. You're going to be the one that's, that's, that's left behind when, when God's blessing His his children. Well, remember this in Philippians 1 6 that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. There are no forgotten children of God. He who started a work in you 
will finish that work in you. That is a promise. So believe it. So our first point of application is to trust God to keep His promises. The second point of application that we learn from Abraham, obey the Lord who has blessed us so richly in Christ. We, we don't obey God so that we can be included in Christ. We obey God because we have been included in Christ by faith. We've been united with Him. And by faith in Christ, we have peace with God and we have become children of God. And so we obey from that position. But we ought to obey. Sometimes we can get that all mixed around. We can get all confused. And, and, and there are very many people who, who, very many religions that teach that if you do these steps, you will be acceptable to God. There are also those who say, well, by faith in Christ, you are united with God, so it doesn't really matter what you do, so do whatever you want. But the biblical doctrine says, there is nothing you could do on your own to unite yourself to God, to bring yourself at a place of uh, peace with God. There's nothing on your own you could do to do that. But by faith in Christ, by believing in Him and what He has accomplished, we become united with Him so that His righteousness is ours. Our sin is placed upon Him and punished in Him. We have acceptance with God. We have, we have membership in God's family. And thus, from that position, we respond by wanting to obey. And so rather than obeying to achieve, we obey because Christ has achieved. And so we step out and we seek to obey. We seek to, to do what God says. And so Abraham's response here of, of obedience is exactly right. And it ought to be our response. Not our response so we can gain favor with God, but our response because we have gained favor with God in Christ. We have to be clear on that. We need to understand what it means to obey God as a Christian. We're not trying to get God finally to think we're good. We're accepted in Christ. And His perfect record is, is ours before God. So we're not trying to achieve. We're not trying to accomplish. We're not trying to attain right standing with God, we are obeying because in Christ we have right standing with God. And just like a loving child wants to obey his loving father, so we, we long to obey God. And so we step out in obedience. So the second uh, response to the revelation of uh, God's work here of, of blessing them with this son is to obey the Lord. Like Abraham obeyed the Lord, we get to obey the Lord. And the third response, and this is crucial, Laugh. Laugh. I don't mean like you're, like you're crazy, like you don't have a care in the world, like uh, people are going to look at you or whatnot, but, but Sarah's response here is instructive to us. Her response was laughter. Her response was a joy that welled up. Her response after all these decades of disappointment was to, to say that God has given me laughter. She gets to laugh. And since we have such a God and such a relationship with our God, Christians ought to be characterized by this kind of laughter. Whatever disappointments we face in life, whatever hardships, whatever 
whatever broken promises, whatever uh, difficulties we've gone through, or people turning from us, or, or turning on us, or, or, uh, or loss, death that we faced, severe uh, illness, and all the, all the very real things in life that we face. Think of Sarah and what she had faced. A lifetime of disappointment. And she receives this child. God blesses her. And her response is laughter. God has given me laughter and everyone else is going to laugh right along with me. This is the greatest thing. Could you believe that this happened? Her response is joy. And folks, your response and mine, even though the the hard things are realities, our response ought to be laughter as well. Our response ought to be joy because of who God is and what God has done. Scripture agrees with this. Psalm 92 and verse 4, For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. The works of your hands I sing for joy. Christian, are you joyful? Preacher, are you joyful? I know I don't always let my my, uh, emotions show on my face or or whatever, uh, but oftentimes I look joyless because I'm joyless. And that is not okay. Christian, we have been redeemed As we were talking in Sunday school today, we were finishing up the Ten Commandments and talking about all that's involved in in, in obedience to the Ten Commandments and realizing we fall short in ways we never even knew we could fall short. Our guilt is far greater than we could ever imagine. We could preach for the next ten years on, on expounding all the guilt that we have before God because we don't obey perfectly. And we would never plumb the depths of our guilt And all of that guilt for each of us who has faith in Christ, for each of us who have turned from trusting ourselves or trusting our own climbing of the ladder or whatever and trusted Christ and what He's accomplished, that that immense degree of mass and and, and horrible nature of guilt that we have is paid for. How then can we be joyless people? We ought to be a joyful people even in the face of difficulty even in the face of loss, even in the face of illness, of hardship. And by the way, I, very often we as elders, we, we get to observe people in, in conditions that, that most others don't, where they're, where they're facing death or they're facing serious illness or loss or uh, in the toughest times in life. And we're shocked at how often at that moment where things could not get worse, it seems, we see joy, and we're humbled. We who, who, who aren't facing that right now are humbled at the joy of God's people, even in the midst of that difficulty. So, Christian, are you joyful? We need to laugh. This is an application that I want us to take with us. You don't have to, you know, laugh in my face or, or whatever, but there's a joy in being a Christian that is ours and ought to be ours. Psalm 30 and verse 11, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. Oh Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. What do we not have when we have Christ? What do we need when we have what we need most, our Savior? What do we have to be joyless about, Christian? We ought to be a joyful people. We ought to be a a, a buoyant people. 
able to navigate the difficulties and the hardships and the pains of life, realizing better than the non-Christian the depth of those pains and, and, and what loss really means, understanding better the, the eternal ramifications, but, but being buoyed up by the reality of our salvation that we have in Christ, that we've been redeemed. So we can, we can laugh. Psalm 9, verses 1 and 2, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. That ought to be us, Christian. I want that to be me more and more. Where I'm reminded, I remind myself and we remind one another of what God has done, of what this redemption is, and, and, and we're encouraged so that we rejoice. Yes, hardship, but always rejoicing. Psalm 68, the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Let's laugh like Sarah. Let's respond with joy in hardship. Rejoice because of God's blessings that is made ours in Christ. Rejoice before others. Not just, not just in here. It's not, it's not just for, for me in my prayer closet and I'll rejoice in there and I'll come out and I've got to be serious for you guys. No, we rejoice before others. Joy is a contagious thing among Christians. You know that person. You've been around that person. You come in and you're, you're just determined to be frustrated with life and upset and this person is joyful. They have the joy of the Lord and you just can't, your, your, your bitterness just can't, can't, can't stand before their joy. Joy is contagious amongst Christians. Let's, let's infect one another. Rejoice before others and rejoice in the face of hardship. I know that in this room is represented hardship I can't comprehend. I'm not telling you to rejoice in the face of hardship because I've faced real hardship and I, and I succeeded in this and I know how to do it, so you should be like me. That's not what I'm saying. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you by the authority of Scripture that however in-depth your hardship is, you can rejoice and ought to rejoice in the midst of that because of what you have in Christ. What could there be that would take away such joy? Rejoice in the face of hardship and rejoice because though genuine and painful hardship will come, a joyless Christian is a contradiction in terms. If you didn't write that down, at least remember it. A joyless Christian is a contradiction in terms. I love Isaiah 35 and verse 10. The ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrows and sighing shall flee away. Christian, that is our lot. They don't, they don't flee away perhaps as fast as we might like. Perhaps the expression of joy might not be as, as abundant and as immediate as we might like. But that joy is ours in Christ. It's yours. And so the challenge for me in this passage, and it's a convicting passage, is the same challenge that I have for you in this passage, which is to rejoice in the Lord. Laugh right along with Sarah and with one another, that we could encourage one another about the reality of 
our redemption with Christ and what this is, that I can face hardship because I have Jesus. What else do I need? Let's pray. Father, I confess that uh, I am not the poster child for obedience to um, um, what we learn in this passage. I confess that uh, all too often I inflate hardships or difficulties, uh, real or perceived, in my own mind, such that I end up uh, worrying about them and, and drawn into despair or frustration or anger or bitterness or something. Father, I pray that you would forgive me of that and forgive each of us where we do that. And may we instead make much of Christ. May we instead uh, remind ourselves regularly and remind one another about what it means that we have been, by faith, redeemed in Christ. That we get to be reconciled to you. That we, we get to take this message of reconciliation to, to the lost around us. Maybe to the very person who's, who's uh, inspiring such bitterness in us. That they might also be redeemed. Father, I pray that you would remind us of the great blessing inestimable blessing that we have in Christ and that we would look differently on our, on our lives and on our circumstances, that our hardships <clears throat> that once were so great would diminish, that the, the, the reality of the opposition and difficulty, the thing we fear would be, that it, it, it seems so stark, but that it would that it would turn to mist in the face of Jesus Christ. So, Father, we, we pray that you would work these truths in our hearts. We pray that you would help us to ponder these things and that you would change our very countenance with the realities of what we've read about in this passage and what we've talked about from your word. And may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great, and indeed you are great. Pray that you would drive that truth right into the core of our being, that it would become our song. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There's going to be a family up front who would love to pray with you. They would love to laugh with you or cry with you. Um, and uh, I want to close with these words, folks. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. God bless you all, and you are dismissed.